Hello and welcome to the Future Work Life podcast. My name's Ollie Henderson and today's guest is Andrew Hill. Andrew is the Associate Editor and Management Editor of the Financial Times. As well as writing the FT's weekly column on management, he's a previous winner of Business Commentator of the Year and the Decade of Excellence Award for Sustained Achievement in Business and Financial Journalism. Most relevantly to you, perhaps, you might recognise him as one of the writers I've referenced most in my weekly news digest in the Future Work Life newsletter. We discuss hybrid work and the future of workplace culture, and as the role of managers changes, we explore what skills will be necessary for the future. We also dig into whether we should be aspiring for happiness in our work, and somehow I end up comparing one stage of the flow state cycle to the importance of resting meat. Apologies to any vegetarians out there. Lastly, I picked Andrew's brains about what makes a good business book. Now, this is the final episode of this sixth series of the Future Work Life podcast, and what a great one it's been. If you're new to the show, then make sure you subscribe and go back and listen to me talk about making big changes in your career with Grace Lorden from the London School of Economics, the importance of collective joy in the workplace with Bruce Daisley, the emergence of a new category of human with Christopher Lockhead, and the power of regret with Daniel Pink. You'll find a full archive, of course, on your podcast player of choice. Thanks as ever for listening and a big thanks to Andrew for his time. I really enjoyed our chat and I'm sure you will too. On which note, let's get into it. Here's my conversation with Andrew Hill from the FT. What makes a good business book or perhaps a better way of looking at it is what do people get wrong? There's a number of things that business book, bad business books get wrong. One is one is the sort of being over academic, essentially translating your academic view of business into uh, inclu- often including the graphs and slides that, that you might have used in lectures into hard covers and assuming that makes a book. There's a surprising number of those around. They may be useful as textbooks, but um, they don't read well. That's a sort of cautionary tale for any professors out there. If for CEOs, there are a lot of books that CEOs write or that they get written for them and then put their name on the cover more often than not. There, I think the obvious pitfall there is it's kind of history written by the victors. They tend to gloss over anything that has gone wrong uh, and turn everything into a challenge overcome and success guaranteed. And actually the best ones, uh, and they're few and far between of books by CEOs or people in executive positions, tend to be the ones that admit to failures and indeed how they've learned from mistakes The one I always recommend on that is Creativity Inc. by the Mm. former president of um, Pixar, Ed Catmull. And then in the more general genre of of business books, maybe this is just because I do read a lot of them, but I think there's a danger of recycling the same stories, the same academic uh, studies, and indeed some of the same examples. Business books, it's a huge market in the United States. So, of course, a lot of the examples are examples from the U.S., And once you've, I used to play a little game of looking at a pile of business books and checking the index for references to Apple, then Google, then Amazon. And the same studies, case studies of the same businesses tend to recur. So I'm always pleased to read a business book that has a bit more of a global reach. Yeah, there's also certain books or ideas that seem to have crossed into common knowledge but also make their way into every business book like growth mindset you know when growth mindset's crossed over when your six-year-old daughter comes home from school talking about having learned about it in uh, in her PSAG class and uh, that happened to me yesterday so 
Um, <laughs> yeah, but that was a, that's an interesting example because that idea was an original. Well, I have an idea from psychology, really, more than business. But um, and uh, of course, you know, it's a very it's a very powerful a powerful idea. So, in a way, you want the you want to go back to the original and, and read read the original uh, book on mindset, growth mindset, and probably discard quite a lot of the uh, of the follow-ups yeah it's funny isn't it business books are this sort of fine line between being recognizable in the kind of ideas that they discuss but not so recognizable that you feel like you've read it before I think I think the best example of that for me I had Daniel Pink on well he's on the podcast which has been released tomorrow actually and his book Drive did that with intrinsic motivation it's when you read it yeah that makes complete sense but it's actually sometimes people packaging it up in a particular way and positioning it in a particular way which really resonates but is it's a careful balance one which I'm sure I'm going to have to learn as I start writing my book this year we have over the past couple of years clearly had some really profound changes in the way that we work and then you document this in your column um, for the FT. I'm just wondering what is the kind of longest lasting trends within those and whether there are any which as things become more normal and when we experience fewer restrictions in the way we work, whether there's anything you think will spring back to how they were before? Well, it's, we're still early days, really. We're talking on the day after the kind of lifting of restrictions was announced in the UK and many countries. I was in Spain last week where they've only just lifted requirements to wear uh, face masks outside. So in terms of work, this is still a work in progress. And I think it's probably in the balance a bit to what extent we return to something that would have been recognisable in 2019 or, or we adopt a complete change. I think that what one can say is that anyone who's at either extreme of that is probably wrong. So we've already seen that in the US investment banks, such as Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, last year put in place a pretty strict return to work policy of five days a week for most of their uh, staff have had to adjust and say, actually, look, it's not going to be, it's going to be a bit more blurred than that. And that what they've recognised there, I think, is in part that they might have been putting themselves at a competitive disadvantage in terms of retaining and recruiting staff. But also that as uh, the Omicron wave showed, you can't necessarily guarantee that you're going to be able to follow through even now on on a return to uh, the office uh, five days a week. So I think one lasting thing will be that there will be more days spent flexibly. Everyone companies and employees has realized that they're capable of operating on a two to two, three, three, two, uh, 60, 40 ratio, if you like, of home and office. And not to exclude there the sort of third space that we've just written about in the FT of working somewhere else, like a shared, a co-working space, or even a, a more a less formal relationship and uh, working relationship via a cafe or a uh, another place. So I think that flexibility will be retained in most organizations. However, I, you know, I think there is a gravitational pull back to the office. There's a natural attraction for employers of using the space that they own or have leased. And so they've got to find a way of bringing people back. And that may be, in some cases, I've written about uh, 
a steel case, which has a double reason for bringing people back to the office in that it makes office furniture, but which was staging barbecues and pipe band concerts and more less frivolously face-to-face meetings with senior executives as a way of encouraging people that they should use their head off. And I think lots of companies will be will be doing that because we haven't quite yet got to the point where people have said, I am prepared to break my lease and leave the office forever. Some companies have done that and small, generally smaller companies. I'm aware of various, a charity, for example, that's given up its London expensive London office space because they found that they could work more easily and or just as easily remotely. But I think that both policy and the central inertia of the fact that offices exist will still mean that there will be people in offices for the foreseeable future. So if you went to the other extreme and said, we're going to make all our people permanently remote, I think you might find that was going too far in some cases, unless you'd already set yourself on that course. Yeah. I wonder how you see the idea of workplace culture having changed as well, or whether it's this sort of in that scenario you outlined where essentially we have to wait, which I think is the reality. This almost this sort of stasis where what is the culture? Is it simply about the, the way we act when we're communicating with one another? Or is it about, in that example you gave about the way in which we come together and share sort of a collective experience? And how do you think that, that businesses have thought about culture over the past couple of years? And do you think they've, again, had just had to reorientate themselves to a different way of thinking? Or do you feel like there's a kind of vacuum in which they're, they're operating at the moment? I'm not sure there's a vacuum because I think there is always a culture. Whatever it is, it's always going to exist. It might be mm. a culture of everyone feeling that they're in some dystopian nightmare where they never talk to their <laughs> colleagues <laughs> and acting accordingly. That would be a culture, not a great yeah. one, but it would still be a culture. I, In the 2020, I thought this is really going to knock corporate culture. It would be very hard to keep people on the same map of thinking about how they behave and and what they do if they're all remote or often remote. I I changed my mind on that last year because I recognized that actually there, there was a culture when we were all in lockdown, which was different from the culture when we were in the office, but it still existed. It might have consisted of more informal meetings. To give you a very obvious example, clearly we've all become able to use Zoom and video from wherever we are. But 2019 and before, those tools existed. But as I was talking to somebody this morning who was saying, in 2019, she runs a training, online training operation that was existed before the pandemic. And she said it was very rare that people turned on their cameras when they were on calls. Well, we're now much more comfortable about doing that. And indeed, you know, speaking as somebody who interviews people often a, a long way away, I would probably choose now to interview somebody I'd never met before on video, whereas in the past I might have just done a phone call thinking video mm. was a an imposition. And in fact, I would find that an advantage because I would at least have some connection with the person I was looking at that I might not have had before. So I think those things change culture. Another example is that we've become comfortable both in subversive and more formalized ways in using the chat within video calls as a way of supplementing, or as I say, occasionally, if you're using WhatsApp while the boss is speaking and talking to your colleagues who are on the same call, subverting the the discussion you're having. So all these are versions of 
an online culture, I think it does potentially make it more difficult for companies to impose a top-down culture if they have only got 60% of the of the of office use which might have been 100% or 99% before uh, pandemic because clearly you are going to find ways of you're going to have difficulty getting people to maintain loyalty when they are more remote and perhaps therefore more connected to family or local community rather than to the office i wrote something about this that the survey work on this is a bit mixed at the moment because at one and the same time you've got the idea that people are leaving their employers because they feel less connected to them. But at the same time, there's some survey work done in the financial services sector in the UK that suggested that people actually felt they were getting more attention from their bosses during lockdown and by work when they were working remotely. Mm. So that it, it can cut in different directions, this. So again, I think we're still in a situation where that is evolving, but it may be that there are cultures that are developing literally out of sight of the of the team leader or the CEO. But I suspect that was already the case, given the tools that we could use at work over the last 10 to 20 years that have developed. It's already the case that you would find subgroups forming, which were creating a different alternative culture of work. Yeah. So you mentioned there actually is an interesting one as well. You talked about team leaders or CEOs. Certainly one much discussed point is whether the role of managers has become not necessarily redundant but certainly again that's had to significantly change because and again these are generalizations but the the typical view of a manager pre-pandemic was the supervisor in a sense wasn't it sort of somebody within the room who could actually see those people on their seats and perhaps be there you know in their you know physical space to be available to help them out or or in more negative conversations watch over them um I, i think that certainly feels like the skills they've required have had to change. I, I suppose my, a good question would be, are they less relevant now, managers? Or is it just that they have to? we have to help them discover a new set of skills which are, are more suitable for this sort of digital and hybrid world? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think the, I think obviously it may well have exposed in some companies um, managers who are redundant in the sense that you if you can use the tools that we now are more comfortable with to communicate directly with your manager's boss or to arrange something with the rest of the team without the manager having to call a meeting to do that potentially makes managers feel redundant and it may well be the case that in some companies although I haven't come across any they have decided that's just an excuse for taking out a layer of managers if everybody can work seamlessly together. I actually think I'm a big fan of managers and what we sometimes disparagingly call middle managers in particular as the sort of linking tissue between senior executives and people doing the frontline and and operational jobs. And I actually think that this crisis ought to reinforce the need for managers to work in a slightly different way, just happening at some companies where the manager is more like a coach, Mm. less like a martinet telling you what to do. And as you say, sitting looming over you when you're doing whatever you're supposed to be doing. I think in lots of ways, the, the repeated call 
to bring people back to the office was a some in some senses an admission that manager, management was not being done very well. Because frankly, if you can only manage people by seeing them doing what they're doing, you really haven't advanced very far from the 19th century at that point with a kind of foreman and a, a taskmaster overseeing a lot of people working a loom or whatever it might be. Um, it seems to me that the the real asset of, or the real uh, advantage that one could take from the lockdown is in spotting those managers who are good at doing this slightly more subtle hands-off management coaching role of asking questions of people and getting them to answer them, of making sure that people are doing things not by direct surveillance, um, but by overseeing a broader effort rather than an individual I'm standing behind you so I can see exactly how you do this and tell you off if you don't do it right. Now, this is is hard for some managers to deal with. And before the pandemic, I did a big uh, dive into work being done at Michelin in France with a pilot project of coaching style management. And the managers and some of the employees there said it had been difficult for some of their team leaders to to make this work because they were so used to operating in a way where they had all the answers yeah. to defer to, to delegate that power to the employees was a hard one for some of them to to deal with so i think there's a danger that the return to the office is seen as lots of people say rather lazily, I think, we need people back in the office because that's the only way in which people get the the kind of managers are able to deal with their teams and handle the ways. But that is a that's an invitation to presenteeism, it seems to me. Uh, And it's an acknowledgement, I think, that managers maybe had got lazy in the office. Essentially, if all you need to do is glance across and see whether somebody was slumped sobbing on their keyboard (laughs) to work out whether they were happy or not, then you weren't managing them properly in the first place. You needed to be doing the things that managers had to do during lockdowns, which is calling people, giving them a bit of direction and feedback if they needed it, even just simply asking the question, how are you? Is there anything I can do to help? Which seemed to me to be a useful duo of questions for any manager to be asking on a regular basis. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I I talk about this idea of the flipped workplace quite a bit. I don't know if you've heard that expression. It comes from the idea of flipped education where you know a lot of those online education platforms essentially change the relationship between the work we do studying on us on our own to those sessions we'd come together and whereas in the real world at actual university or college you might all congregate in lectures and then congregate for your tutor-led sessions actually what the online dynamics done is allow people to study in their own time at their own pace and then they come together and it could be online but it could just as easily be uh, in person and this is the i suppose the, the parallel with returning to the office where actually they are around it's about group discussion and analysis and actually like you say that role of the manager then becomes something of coach or facilitator so yes. that, that is i think that definitely is a different skill isn't it as you described the michelin example i suspect there will be many examples of that and therefore the kind of the 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 necessity for businesses would be to change their approach to learning and development as well to to make sure that managers have those skills. Yeah, I think it was notable. I'm not saying that CEOs are bad managers, but it was pretty notable last year before the Omicron wave that most of the calls for people to return to the office or most of the impulse to return to the office was coming from the top. Mm. And I spoke to 
CEOs, some of whom admitted, I don't like it that I can't look out of my office and see people around and see what they're doing. It felt like a kind of denial of the role that they had been, that they had risen to. They were unable to exercise their management skills. So I think that's been a rather in the same way that we've all accelerated down the use of digital tools, I think that probably has, I hope there has been a sort of acceleration of the management tools that you can use to, to facilitate, as you put it, in this way. You, you mentioned a moment ago the idea of being happy at work. I'm reminded of, you wrote an article, I think, or maybe, I'm not sure it was within this article, but it was certainly related. When Mihai Csikszentmihalyi died last year, so he was, yeah. the, he was the guy who coined the phrase flow. And I, think, I know you wrote about that idea about flow, and I've probably got a follow-up question in a minute, but related to happiness... Should we be be aspiring for happiness at work? Is that something that when managers and leaders think about their priorities with their workforce, they should be thinking our priorities to make these people happy? Or actually, should we be realistic that actually for most people, work's just a way to pay the bills and perhaps real joy is a reserve of your personal life? Yeah, this is a big, huge question even pre-pandemic. I think what's true over the last two years is that people have been sent back to think about why am I doing this? So they have looked at not necessarily happiness, but certainly meaning. What does this job mean to me is a question that people have been posing as they sit in their living rooms or hunched over their kitchen tables or whatever. And I think those who came up with the answer, well, actually, it's not very meaningful at all, are among those who probably contribute to the great resignation or the big quit or whatever you like to call it of people deciding that they're going to ditch their job or move on to something else. I think it's a little bit dangerous to to have people aspiring or certainly managers aspiring to create happiness at work. That could be pretty forced. I've tried to spend my career avoiding any organisation that might force me to wear fancy dress or sing songs on a Friday or whatever it might be. I think as cynical journalists, we probably were repelled by that anyway. But the fact is that there's a forced element to it. But there's also a more dangerous element, which is that I think if you guarantee people, if you say that you're going to find complete fulfillment and happiness through work, then you risk the bad day, which is inevitable in anybody's week, becoming a gigantic moment of self-criticism. This is my son's just started paid work in the last year. And it's one of the things I've been mentioning to him that if he has a bad day, he's doing mm. a job that he loves, one that he wanted to do, lucky enough to be able to do it. But it doesn't mean that he has to be happy every day. And I think there is a danger at a certain point, still the case that I think a lot of recruitment, particularly of um, graduates and young people, is based on the idea of you're going to have a really fulfilling time here at this big four accountant, or you're going to have a... And the reality is, we all know that any job, however great it is, going to occasionally bore you, make you feel a bit rubbish, you're going to get shouted at, you're going to have bad days. So happiness as an aspiration at work is fine, but I think it needs to be offset by the idea that you're not going to be that in that state constantly. And, that, and that's back to the Mihai, Csikszent Mihai flow idea. And I think he recognised that flow was not something that you could achieve on a sort of constant basis. It'd be exhausting apart from anything else to be in a constant state of flow, but that you should be finding ways in which you could put yourself into this state. It's not, I don't think flow is quite 
happiness, quite synonymous with happiness, but certainly being able to put yourself into this, to know how you can get into this state is something that he found to be useful and a way of having a happy life by which I suspect that he meant more the na- the average rather than the yeah. constant. You're right. It's not all about happiness being being in flow. But the, the reason I like it as an idea is because it says more about your kind of satisfaction or giving you the fulfillment at work because actually in some cases it incorporates there being a certain amount of risk in the work that you're doing or novelty. And these are things which don't aren't synonymous with happiness. But equally, when you think about meaning at work, I think most of the, the triggers for flow state in its curious form, if you like, are things like autonomy, curiosity and purpose, full concentration, getting the right balance between the kind of skills that you've got on the challenge. And I think actually that, for me, does characterize good work when all of those different things come together. I think you're right in the flow point, as you mentioned, one element of it is that you should be doing something that is a that is a little bit hard and that might be frustrating at some point yeah. but it's got to be enough of a challenge to to drag you in up, up to the flow state and in those so it's not just i'm going to slump on the sofa and do something that i can easily manage it's what can i do that stretches me sufficiently mm. to create that good state of mind in the cycle of flow the the last part of it is about recovery and i was uh, I always compare it, which is, I'm not sure the right comparison to make, but it's a bit like a chef. If you cook a piece of meat, you're supposed to rest it for the same amount of time as it's cooked. That's commonly uh, understood as the, as, the, as the right kind of balance. And it's true of things like flow. And frankly, the idea of the amount of work and this time you spend on focused work, for example, versus resting. So anyway, there's my analogy. I'm not sure. I think Chick sent me no, I like that. Put it better than that. <laughs> I like that. I like that. That's a good one. I just wanted to talk. There was one last question, actually. And I suppose it relates partly to, to many of these things so there's one aspiration that people talked about businesses often talked about in the context of remote work and this is the opposite of presenteeism that we should measure the performance of individuals and the quality of their work through outcomes rather than the time spent i wonder if you've seen evidence of businesses getting this right yes i suppose i would say that in some respects journalism is a bit like that the outcome that one wants in the old days was you know, to hit a deadline and produce a quality newspaper every day. Mm. Uh, and now to hit multiple deadlines and produce a quality journalism in a website minute by minute. And I'm not sure that occasionally people would ask me when I started in journalism, how many articles was I asked to write every week as though there was some kind of uh, <laughs> Soviet output challenge and the, these days it would probably be what level of clicks are you expected to get for every piece that you write but the I think the fact is everyone works in a different way and so there are there are journalists who like to leave everything to the last minute and there are the, those who like to start early in the morning and then have the rest of the day to report other pieces but as long as they hit the deadline and get the outcome mm. of a quality article on filed on time they are judged to have done a decent job and i think that is a, so that's an example and i don't think that's unusual for other professional work at the other extreme of course is the sort of i guess what the law firms are now some of the law firms are now going through which is this element of you have to do the stuff that is thrown at you whenever it is thrown at you and that's why we need everybody to be always on and ready to respond when the client says jump. It ought to be possible to get the outcome 
without having to have everybody present throughout the night to produce it. I understand that sometimes deals are done quickly and sometimes things need to be done faster, more resource needs to be pushed in. But back back to your point about flow, provided you've got the recovery time in between those, you're probably okay. Those are two examples. I think the sort of counter example, again, is the, the presenteeism one, the let's sit here between nine and five, even if the project is complete and prove to everybody that we've served the hours that are necessary. I think it's worth pointing out that seeing this all through a professionals or professional services lens, journalism or law or accounting or whatever, or consulting, whatever that might be, is not the way most people work. I think there are there is a sort of need for an outcomes-based approach in other in other areas that perhaps learn something a little bit from the way in which flexibility can apply with professional services. And again, coming full circle to our discussion of flexibility or remote work and the balance between remote work and office work, I think the real key to this is not so much necessarily saying we need this particular outcome by this particular date, but to ensure that within that project, whether it be a article for the FT or a long-range engineering project, that people are working in the right way so that when they have to produce a report, that is the point where you allow them to do the remote work. Yeah. Uh, when they need to be collaborating and brainstorming on design, I'm just picking these at random, that's when they need to be together. And so my hope would be that people have learnt, companies have learnt that you achieving the outcome is also to do with how you den, do, deal with the steps leading up to it. And you can find ways of allowing people to work in different places or using different modes of work. You should be keeping an eye on whether they're doing the, whether, whether there's an alignment between the task that they're doing and the way and place that they're doing it. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah, and actually coming full circle again, back to, if I remember rightly, for Creativity Inc., there was a big, big narrative within that around granting the directors enough autonomy to be able to manage that creative process, while also giving them the structure and support of what I think they called the Brain Trust, which was John Lasseter and some of the other kind of key members of that team, to essentially provide them with their expert knowledge and support but it all came down to trust i think essentially again i think the sort of the those environment working environments those cultures which do work better towards those outcome orientated goals tend to be environments where they put a lot of a lot of importance into trusting people and giving them the autonomy to to work in a particular way but yeah, yeah. another example that i've written about was is patagonia the the outerwear manufacturer, which apart from being purpose-led benefit corporation and all those progressive things, their favorite line is, in fact, the founder wrote a book called Let My People Surf, Mm. which is when the surf is up in Ventura, California, where their headquarters is, he doesn't want anyone to miss a decent wave just because they have to get there, uh, because they have to be sitting at their desk. There are limits there. I always, I put the question to them when I visited. Obviously, there's some types of parts of the year, times of the year when you're going to have to file the accounts. (laughs) <laughs> and you've got to ignore a nice wave. But that seemed to me the ultimate sort of outcomes-based approach. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, 
I'm just I'm going to ask for one more recommendation. You've mentioned a couple of books already, but I, as I am immersed in this process of writing a book myself, and I'm thinking a lot about the types of reference guides that people can use as they're thinking about what next to do with their careers. I wonder if there's any book that's particularly stuck in your mind over the past couple of years that you've read related to how to think about the next step in in career or even the idea of reskilling and positioning yourself for the for the future. Yes, one which is probably more relevant to people of my vintage than yours, maybe. There's a book which was recommended to me, which came out last year called Changing Gear uh, by Jan Hall, who was a headhunter, and John Stokes, who's a coach, executive coach. Um, And it's essentially about creating a life uh, after a full career. But what it does contain, which I think is relevant to anyone at any stage of their career, is an, a number of sort of tips and tricks and exercises that you can do to work out what you really want mm. to do and how that is, how do you use that to ensure that you're doing the thing, possibly you're picking up something that you gave up when you started your career. So that's a, that's, been a useful sort of reference for me to try and think about next stages but it's more of a late career book than a mid-career book you've interviewed him but I I did I did enjoy the power of regret the new Dan Pink book it seems to me to be a a kind of useful interesting template rather along the same lines as changing gear of saying you you could actually leverage this these regrets that you have to work out as he puts it the photographic negative of a good life how you actually make that kind of better how you make better decisions later to avoid repeating those decisions that you regret great well there's some uh, good, good couple of tips there and obviously i've read the daniel pink one but i've not read changing gear so i will i'll check that out well andrew thanks very much for, for joining me today it's been a pleasure my pleasure thank you and that was my conversation with andrew hill thanks again to andrew for his time this is the final episode of the series so thanks again for listening i'll be back in a few weeks with season seven of the show and We've got some incredible guests lined up, including Emily Balchettis, the renowned social psychologist from New York University, Jeff Kaufman, Emmy Award-winning war correspondent and now tech CEO, and the wonderful Andy Aim MBE, who's an angel investor working on closing gaps of access, opportunity and outcomes for founders from unexpected places. As always, if you've enjoyed listening, please make sure you check out the Future Work Life newsletter, which you'll find a link to in the show notes. So have a great few weeks off, and I'll see you again in April.